Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so my guest this week on the show is Dr. Hal Rosenberg. Hal's considered by many to be a leader in the world of sports medicine and has been practicing as a sports chiropractor for over 20 years now. And during that time, he's treated many of the country's top athletes, including a bunch of household names in the ultra running world, some Olympians, and people just trying to perform their best. And as the trails start to melt out and folks are upping their running mileage a bit, I thought it was a really good time to bring Hal on to discuss some super simple ways we can all stay healthy and avoid spending our summers on the couch. I've done that before, and trust me, it's not a lot of fun, so this will hopefully be a really informative episode. And before we get into that chat, though, I do want to take a quick minute and encourage you all to check out our Blister membership and all of the benefits it offers, including access to all of our flash reviews and deep dives, discounts on a bunch of really sweet products we love, and a whole lot more. So check out our Blister membership via the link in the show notes. And with that, let's get right into my conversation with Dr. Hal Rosenberg. Dr. Hal Rosenberg, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast with me today. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here. So I wanted to have you on because it is getting into prime running season in most areas around the country now, and people are definitely upping their mileage, maybe training for a summer race. And I think one thing about our sport is it is notorious for having super high injury rates. But I think that there are some really simple tricks to keep folks healthy and running strong throughout the year that I want to get into with you because I know that that's your area of expertise. But I thought before we dive into some of those topics, I wanted to learn a little bit more about how you ended up in your practice. And I know you are also a pretty avid endurance athlete yourself. So I was wondering if you could kind of shed some light onto how you got into sport and what about participating in these events makes you better at treating some of the injuries that plague them. Yeah, I've I've been athletic and active my whole life. I started off playing a lot of field sports, soccer, a little bit of baseball, a little bit of football, got into some mountain biking and some club ultimate, rock climbing. And of all those different activities, running has always been kind of the the common denominator, something that I would always, it was always familiar to me and I would always kind of revert back to it. I would participate in running in different things, but never look at it as something as like a primary tool of, of sport or that type of thing for myself. I knew that it was for other people. And then I was living in uh, Boulder, Colorado, got involved with running the Boulder Boulder. It's a really big race that, that happens on Memorial Day every year. Um, and the whole town comes out around it. And it's something that you kind of get swept up in, whether you're regardless of, of what level runner you are. And that kind of like brought me in to a little bit more of like, this is what a race is and, and that type of thing. Uh, and then it just kind of gradually built from, built from there. I started to get a little interested in triathlon and, um, had the opportunity to work, um, kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit, but, but, but work within the sports medicine uh, at Ironman for a little bit, 
that kind of was the stepping stone to where um, I got to today. I had my going back a little bit. I was interested in sports medicine from about the level of high school. Uh, I was inspired by some athletic trainers and, and some different people, um, Joe Prosky being one. He was the athletic trainer for the Phoenix Suns uh, many years ago. And I just thought that he had a really cool job. Not that I wanted to work with basketball specifically, but just with athletes in general and people who are trying to achieve higher levels of goals. And spent several years of trying to figure out what that meant and the, the route that I wanted to take and ultimately got to where I am today. So where are you today? So today I am uh, at Mount Tam Sport and Spine in Mill Valley, California. I work with a lot of endurance athletes, ultra runners, uh, runners in general, active people um, broadly, uh, a lot of triathletes, cyclists, field sports. I work with a lot of high school athletes. But endurance sports is really kind of my, my passion and my forte of where my interests and expertise has brought me. So I know you are a chiropractic sports practitioner. I'm wondering if you can kind of elaborate on, on what exactly that means. Chiropractic, like, like medicine, has many different specialties. So just like there are some medical doctors who specialize in sports injuries and others who have other specialties of the body or uh, within healthcare, the same thing happens. Uh, the same thing applies within chiropractic. So my field of choice and uh, expertise and knowledge happens to be within uh, sports medicine and sports injury. Gotcha. So why might someone come see you? Uh, because of the analysis and knowledge that I bring to look at what could be not moving well within their body that's preventing them from achieving their full maximum capabilities um, and or leading to different types of injuries or things that are preventing them from continuing on to whatever activity is because of an injury or a breakdown in the mechanics. I feel like a lot of people, when they get injured, they'll go see their primary care doctor or maybe a specialist and the specialist or the primary care doctor will essentially tell them to stop running. And as runners, that's kind of the last thing we want to hear. So what I am gathering is that you are, you take more of an approach of trying to get people like back on the trails and like working through their issues. Cause I, I don't think that like every running injury necessarily responds well to rest, right? Um, the body in general doesn't respond well to rest. We, t we tend to be way too sedentary in our lives. And that's where a lot of these non-sport related, non-sport injuries that impact our sport come from is just being way too sedentary, sitting for, for way too long and not moving as, as much as we should. So our bodies are designed to move and we don't move them. There can be significant detrimental implications just as if we were overdoing it or, or moving too much. And I hear that all the time of people, they go to see wh whichever practitioner because of, of an injury and they were told that to stop running or that they should never run again or that they shouldn't do whatever the activity is that's, that's bothering them. Um, almost as if it's that they're just pulling that activity off the table completely. And sometimes we need to 
remove or dial back an activity because of an, a particular injury, but rarely, uh, if ever, do we need to eliminate that activity uh, completely. Sometimes we just need to give the body a little bit of chance to recover, but it doesn't mean that we can't be doing other things to to keep the body active and keep moving when that's appropriate. If it's something like a bone stress injury where it's a low energy availability type of a situation, the tendency for some athletes is, well, if I can't run because I have this stress fracture, then I'm just going to ride a bike or I'm going to swim. And they'll still do it pretty aggressively or even they'll do it at a lower level. But if it's because if that injury is because of a low energy availability, then they need to let their body recover on a on a more significant level to be able to build back up and, and get back to their sport. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of recent coverage about red S and low energy availability. And I think it's uh, definitely from my understanding an underdiagnosed issue. So I'm I am glad that there uh, has been a lot more coverage about that. But before we get more into your expertise, I am curious about your history with trail running. I'm wondering if you can kind of talk me through how you started running these trail races and maybe what has what about them has helped you be a better practitioner. My interest and, and passion for trail running started also um, when I, I was living in Boulder, I kind of experimented with it a little bit, but I was still focusing mostly on on roads. I would run an occasional trail there, but um, it w- it wasn't very much. Then I I was working sports medicine with the, the North Face Endurance Challenge, which uh, is right here in Marin County, or was right here in Marin County. Unfortunately, it's not a, a thing anymore. Hopefully, it, it comes back at some point. But um, I was working sports medicine there. And I did that for several years, and um, we're just uh, approaching it from a sports medicine perspective, um, not thinking that it, I was doing it because I was interested in going out and running the trails, although I was very inspired and impressed by that and, and just loved the environment. Um, and I think that that's what drew me in was the community. And one year I said, I'm going to run the marathon this year. And I went to sign up for it. And for those who don't know, there was a 50 mile, a 50K, and a marathon on Saturday. And then there were some other events on Sunday. But I'm looking at it and I said, if there's your choices between a 50K and a marathon, you got to do the 50K. It's for, and that's, I think the mindset is like it's only five more miles. And that was kind of my entry into it. And, um, I wasn't really sure what I was getting into, but I knew that I was really excited about it. And that excitement is what, what drew me in. And I became more and more comfortable on the trails and build up build up mileage, did that race, had an amazing time, and um, I knew I knew that I was in. I I didn't go into that fifty K thinking that I was gonna go all in on trails or and or ultra running. But I had that experience and I knew that that I had found my people. Yeah, you were hooked. So I know you've run at least 100 miles since then, right? How did that kind of come about? You know, yes and no as far as wanting to do more. Because when I did the 50K, I thought, 
there's no way I'm ever going to do a 50 mile, let alone a hundred mile. Um, but just being around that and being in the environment and having friends who were, were doing that, I eventually stepped up and, and I ran the North Face 50 mile, um, which was an amazing experience. And the, the hundred mile that I ended up running was heavily in a hundred, uh, heavily in a hundred mile just outside of Phoenix in Arizona. I grew up in Phoenix. Um, the trails in the desert around that area, super familiar with ran those a little bit as a kid, but again, never really looked at myself as a trail runner, but we were always out playing or running around the desert, hiking around the desert as, as we were kids. Um, the house that I grew up in backs right up to the Phoenix Mountain Preserve. So it, I had a lot of access to that and I was super comfortable in that environment. And so going back there, I just feel that connection to the desert. And from the day that I heard of, of the Havelina 100, I was excited to run the 100K. And I thought that that's what I would do. And I said, you know what? I think I should just run the 100 mile. And it was... It was an incredible experience. Same logic, except uh, expanded just five more miles, just, you know, 40 more miles, right? Yeah, 38. 38, yeah. right, right. What about running in the desert appeals to you so much? I like the terrain. I like the the the, the flora, the fauna, the terrain, all the, the the different aspects of it. And it's just something that I feel that connection to. I don't know what it is. I did. I know that I. That's what I grew up with, and that's where we played as kids. But I didn't appreciate it as a, as a kid. But now, as an adult, I go back there, um, and I I just feel really connected to it. I've also run Black Canyon Hundred K, which starts uh, halfway between Phoenix and Flagstaff and finishes just north of Phoenix. A little bit different course profile, but but very similar terrain, and it's just I just feel like I'm at home. Yeah, there is something really kind of subtly beautiful about the desert. Uh, I think like life is really exposed down there because it's so hard to, to kind of exist. Uh, and I, I feel like that's the, the same experience with like running those races that are often so hot and exposed and, you know, there's not an inch of shade to be found anywhere. Yeah, there is not any, it's, it is totally exposed. Okay. So I want to know a little bit more about how, being an active participant in the sport has helped you become uh, better at treating and understanding athletes? I mean, I think the answer in, in part is, is right there in the question is understanding athletes. So when, when someone is coming to you and saying that they're trying to, to do some amazing feat, whether it's Ironman triathlon or a hundred mile race or a 200 mile race or a multi-day stage race like uh, TDG or Cocodona, which is another big race in, in Arizona. I think having an understanding and appreciation of what it is that they're trying to do and accomplish goes a long way to really being able to help find the solutions for them. For example, I have an athlete who I work with who regularly runs over a hundred miles a week and was down. They were down because of an injury 
at about 80 miles a week. They could maintain 80 miles a week, but if they went higher than that, closer to 100, they would start to have an injury. And they, they went to see uh, a particular uh, medical practitioner who said, well, you just run too much. Well, their running volume is already down 20% from what it is that they can maintain and they're trying to build back up. Um, and so it's not that they're necessarily running too much in some situations, maybe it is, but they were functional at, at 80 miles a week. Um, but not where they needed or, or wanted to be. And so understanding that perspective the, of, of that, having, being out there, knowing what it's like to be running for several hours and not being able to take in very much nutrition, but still being able to take in some things and keep going and know that you can work through that and it gets dark, but then it, it gets light again and that there's, there, there's something brighter there. And so knowing what people invest and put into the sport and the meaning that it gives them as who their identity is to be able to then relate and connect with them, to be able to help provide them with the solutions that they need to continue that pursuit of their life goals. I think as an athlete, it's it's really cool to have someone in your corner that really understands that, right? And I know that folks like you are just so valuable to to people who really like center their lives around running. And I think that is like a really cool perspective that you have. So one other thing I wanted to get into, I know that as a someone that is very invested in, in sports medicine, I have to imagine that this career is taking you to some really cool places. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about some of the most more interesting opportunities you've had in your practice. I've, I'm grateful and, and fortunate for a, a lot of the experience that, that I've had. I've been able to, to travel to, to various parts of the world to just at last fall, I was in Amsterdam um, doing some work. I've had the opportunity to work at the Olympic Training Center with some of the best athletes in the world. Uh, I work on sports medicine with USA Triathlon, Ironman Hawaii many times and getting to go to these exotic locations and just work with really fun people. And it's an amazing experience that I wouldn't train for anything. But what gets me really excited and what gets me up and out of bed every morning is walking into my practice and talking with the person who is told that, they, that they'll never run again or that they can't do whatever it is or that they need to have surgery for something and working with them, talking with them, doing a consultation, doing evaluation, see what's not working for their body and helping to develop a solution with them together to get them back to where they can run again. And when they were told that they couldn't, um, kind of like you had said before that the people were, were told like, by, by a doctor or someone that they should just stop running. And from my experiences, when people tell you to just stop doing something and not do it, most of the time it's because they don't have any other answers for that person. So as I, I try to be that person that has an answer for someone, whether I can directly provide it to them 
And if I don't know it, I'll figure it out. Um, or I will refer them to someone who does have that answer for them. And then someone who might think that they need surgery, or they were told that they need surgery. And, you know, there, there's many people that, that, that need surgery. Um, and it can be very helpful and valuable, but sometimes they don't need surgery and there's different things that we can do to work on their mechanics to get them to be more functional, get better mobility, get better strength, get, get their body moving better and get out of that injury hole. Why do you think injury rates amongst runners are so high? I know every year a study comes out that says within a calendar year, 70% of runners will <laughs> run into some kind of injury, excuse that pun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's like likely a lot more than that. I know it's it's an inevitability, really. Well, kind of the joke is there's 70% that say they got injured and the other 30% are lying. Um, so it's sometimes a, a lot of people talk about it's not if you get injured, it's when you get injured. But running, it, it, it can be taxing on the body. But I think think that it could be less taxing with certain strategies and, and different types of things. I think spending a couple different couple minutes a day working on a mobility routine to work on getting the bottle to, body to be more supple and move a little bit better, to do a little bit of a strength routine, to, to work on some stabilizing muscles. If we want to become better runners, there's nothing is going to get someone to be a better runner than running. But doing some of these other accessory type things of mobility and strength and weightlifting and that type of thing is going to make people a better athlete more broadly. And by being a more durable athlete allows them to be have longer longevity as a runner. Right. Like oftentimes it's not necessarily the running that gets folks injured. It's the rest of their day, like those daily habits. Another question I had for you was about how to differentiate between a true injury versus maybe feeling beat up or some kind of pain. How do you go about assessing whether someone is truly injured or under-recovered? Great question. And it, it's it's something, one of the things that, that I talk about probably... Um, the, the most, or at least definitely on a regular daily basis um, with athletes and in my practice. Um, because being an athlete, soreness and pain is part of it, and not all hurt equals harm. It's not something that we want to just discount by, by saying that, but just because something hurts or is sore is means that it's necessarily bad. And that's where I help people to, to work on navigate, navigating that. So soreness and, and feeling beat up, it's going to be more kind of a general feeling. People are going to feel it on both sides, kind of up and down the, the whole, the whole leg. And it's going to be more of a, of a general type, type of a thing, broadly, broadly speaking, injuries are going to be something that is some, uh, that's going to be a little bit more specific to a particular region or body part being beat up. If you take any time people are feeling beat up or feeling something in general, 
I encourage them, maybe they need to, to take a day off or something like that. And if people are feeling a little beat up, that's going to improve and, and feel better with a day of rest or a day of recovery. And it's not going, you're not going to lose fitness by taking a day off. You could take a week or two or an extended period of time, a lot longer than people think, and they're not going to lose fitness and whatever they do, it's on a very small percentage and it comes back super fast. So taking a day off, letting your body recover a little bit, getting back into it. If it's still bothering you, then it may be an injury, or maybe you need a little bit more time. And so I guide people on what I call the stoplight system. So just like we have a stoplight when we're driving the car, we have a green light, we have a yellow light, we have a red light. So if we're doing an activity and there's no pain at all with it, then that's a green light and they can go ahead and proceed with that, that activity as, as they want to. If they're having mild level symptoms, uh, there's, it's, it's a subjective scale, so up to about three or four out of 10 on the pain scale. But I like to add this functional component to it is if you're favoring that injury uh, or favoring that, that part of the body or that movement, you're compensating, you're moving differently, you're out of rhythm, you're out of symmetry, then, then that's a red light. So if you're having mild to moderate symptoms, but you're not moving any differently, then that's a yellow light that's acceptable um, or symptoms that start off at the beginning of a run or beginning of an activity and they get better with a warm up. That's, that's an acceptable moving into a, a good activity. But if things are worsening or people are compensating or moving differently, then that's a red light. You want to stop and avoid further injury and compensation for that. Are there certain types of pain people should look out for? Like acute pain versus, you know, something that like warms up a little bit that is painful at the beginning of a run? I mean, if it's things that, that are painful at the beginning of a run, they get better are less concerning. It doesn't mean that you want to ignore them. If they tend to, to be around for a little bit, or if you take a couple days off, a day or two off, and it's still bothering you, then that's something that you should probably get checked out. Um, but if, if it's something that's getting better, um, and you're able to take a day off or do some mobility or a massage gun or that type of thing, or a foam roller, and work on some mechanics a little bit, then that's something that, that most people are going to be able to manage on their own. What advice would you give to a hypothetical runner that has maybe an A race coming up and that is dealing with something? I know running, racing through injury can be kind of a kind of controversial topic. Some people, some people do it and other people shut their running down and kind of move on to the next race. What has your experience with that been? It's very individual based on, on who the athlete is, what their, what their background is, what their level is, and what the particular event is and what, what, what the future is for them. So in general, it's not recommended, but if it's a, I would never encourage someone to continue on into a a red light or kind of red zone area of what, what we were talking on before. But I wouldn't say that they maybe shouldn't at least try because a lot of times people might have something that's bothering them and affecting them and they get to race day and it's totally fine. And so 
something that, that could be bothering them. If I'm not able to, to assess them and see what's going on, it could be kind of a taper tantrum type of a thing. And that, that it's more of, of a mental thing where it's not really impacting them on a musculoskeletal physiological basis, but it's still, they're still feeling something. I mean, pain, it's a, it's a perception. So someone can't look at you and tell you if you're having pain or not. They can see some other signs of it, but it's a very subjective experience of as, as far as what it is. But kind of getting back to the question is just talking about what the implications of are of that. So I won't necessarily tell someone just flat out not to do it. I'm, I would say you probably should or shouldn't do it, but, or if you do this, here's what the risks are of that. Cause I don't want to make that decision for them. I don't believe it's my place to make that decision for someone, but it's my job to tell someone if they do it, here's, here's what the risks of doing that could be. That's such a, such a hard position because as endurance athletes, we're kind of conditioned to push through pain most of the time, but often, yeah, differentiating between types of pain can mean staying healthy and kind of breaking into new levels of fitness versus, you know, spending the summer on the couch, which I think is, is yeah, pretty unique to our sport. Well, and, and any, any ultra or a trail runner has had the experience where they're in the middle of a race or a long run or a long event and something starts to hurt or bother them and they focus on running a little bit more smoothly or they shift from a run to a slower pace or they, they hike for a little bit and maybe after about five or ten minutes of hiking, they start running again and now their knee or their ankle or their leg that was bothering them has loosened up and it's and it's not not bothering them and that's that's a regular part of trail and and ultra running and it's not that that there was an injury there but things weren't working properly and you allowed it to 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 work through and 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 loosen up and now things are functioning to a, a better extent what kind of injuries are maybe very specific to trail running versus say like road running or is there a ton of overlap that i i personally see a, a a ton of overlap um if anything the because of the variability that the, the trail runners it tends to be a little bit more i mean running whether it's trail running or road running it's still a very linear sport where you're going pretty much just in the in m- moving forward in one plane of motion because of the variability of a trail, um, there's a little bit of side to side and, and lateral motions. Um, so maybe a little bit less from that perspective, but because of volume, um, the trail runners tend to run a little bit more than, than road runners that, uh, it kind of, kind of nets out a little bit, but you know, a lot of lower extremity, um, type things and, a, a variety of, of uh, different conditions i guess more probably more acute injuries as well just from taking spills here and there spills and ankle sprains probably more ankle sprains um in trail runners than than road runners 
Um, I work with a lot of ankle sprains and that type of thing. So something you mentioned earlier in our conversation were some suggestions for what people can do outside of their time training to help mitigate injury. Do you have kind of a, you know, a running list of those we could kind of talk about? Running list. Good one. Yeah. I'm trying to fit in all the puns (laughs) as I can. Just as always. Um, you, you know, working on some, some mobility, um, whether it's a foam roller doing a lot of people historically may, may be familiar with static stretching, um, in sports medicine, we've gotten out away from static stretching and working more on active and dynamic stretching and and active mobility to where we're working through different ranges instead of just trying to hold and lengthen muscles. Um, we found over time that just static stretching really doesn't work that well. There are some people who swear by it and claim that that helps them. And that's what the research shows is that, that the people who get a benefit from static stretching are the ones who will benefit from it. Um, but sometimes people just do static stretching because they think that that's what they're supposed to do, or they were told that that's what they should do, but they don't notice any benefit from it. You ask them, you know, how do you feel after that? And they're like, I don't feel any different. Well, don't waste your time doing that. There's other things that, that you can Um, and probably should be doing. So working through dynamic movement patterns and in and out of stretches um, and and that type of thing. Um, And then working with some lower extremity um, strengthening and stabilization exercises. Our bodies bodies are inherently, we're top heavy beings. Two thirds of our body mass is two thirds off the ground. And that, that link where that ties everything together is within the hips and and the pelvis and the the trunk and torso at that at that interface so that's why you see a lot of people working on glute strength and stabilization exercises trying to address those areas so by getting better control and stabilization within those areas it's going to help with better stability and better upright posture and and integration of the of the mechanics in general, and then working on calf strength and stabilization. The soleus is, uh, which is one of the muscles of the calf. There's two muscles. There's a couple muscles in the calf. The soleus is one of them. And it takes on a whole lot of force when we're running and we need to absorb that force. And running is really, it's really an absorption and release of energy and the, the soleus muscle is, is one of the main muscles that does that. So working on different calf strength exercises to be able to withstand and have stronger, uh, stronger shocks and springs to be able to absorb that energy and then to release it and to propel ourselves forward. So if I get a standing desk and I'm not sitting at all, all day long, will I not get injured? You, I, 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 I talk about this all the time. Because a lot of people, for a while, we, we, we saw these articles that were coming out, sitting is the new smoking. And so everyone thought, well, I shouldn't sit. I'm just going to get a standing desk, and that will solve all my problems. But the issue isn't sitting. There's nothing inherently wrong with sitting. There's nothing inherently wrong with standing. There's not really anything 
inherently wrong with most positions. One of my favorite concepts is your best position is your next one. So the issue is being sedentary. And so that's sitting being the new smoking is should really be sedentary is the new smoking. Um, because we have musculoskeletal impacts of that. We have um, physiological uh, and, and metabolic impacts from, from not moving and, and from being sedentary. And so if you're just going from sitting to standing, you're just being sedentary in a different position. But a lot of people get a standing desk and they think that that has solved all their problems, but it's still having that movement variability and taking what I call micro breaks or movement snacks and moving the body um, regularly every 15, 20, 30 minutes. And it doesn't need to be anything super extensive or elaborate, just 30 seconds or a minute of moving your body in a different way, getting some extensibility within the muscles, getting some blood flow. And it actually helps to stimulate us um, mentally and intellectually that our, our attention level tends to deteriorate over time. And by getting a little bit of stimulation and blood flow, that's going to peak our arousal level a, a little bit. So we're able to re-engage with our work. I really like that. There are a handful of treatment modalities that I think most people will be familiar with, at least in name. And I know that you specialize in a few of them. So I'm wondering if we can run through a handful of those and you can kind of just give listeners a brief synopsis of each of them? Yeah, absolutely. Sweet. So the first one is Graston. What is that? So Graston falls under a broad, broader category. A lot of people notice Graston. Uh, a lot of people, many people notice something else. It falls under a broad category of instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization. And it started off as, as a way of breaking up and releasing scar tissue and adhesions. And I think that that happens to a certain extent, but not to the broad extent that a lot of people believe that it does. And what I think that it, what it's really doing uh, and, and what some of the, the, the research has, has come out to show is it's, it's getting a neurosensory input into the body to help reestablish the connection between the brain and that part of the body. The, the brain has, has a map within, within itself of the body and to some to varying degrees of neurological connection. But sometimes if those movement patterns are impaired or not, not working properly, it's because that, brain, that, that picture within the mind has become smudged a little bit. And so what this does is it helps to reestablish that connection of, of neurosensory input. Awesome. All right, next one, functional kinesiology athletic taping. Which is, yeah, it it, it, it gets called s several different things as far functional kinesiology athletic taping, I think is what you said. It, it was originally known as, developed as kinesio taping, which was developed by a Japanese chiropractor. He developed it because he knew when people were coming into his into his office and he was putting his hands on them and working with them that they were feeling better from their injuries and getting an improvement within their function. And so he developed this as a way to 
take that that clinical experience and to send them off into the world with it. So that that similar kind of feeling of having his hands on them when they're going out in their their daily activities. So in in a, a similar regard of getting some of that neurosensory input in there. A lot of people talk about, you know, unloading muscles and turning muscles on and turning inactive muscles on and shutting down overactive muscles that we've learned that that doesn't really happen, but from that neurosensory component, that that's, that that's where that effect is coming from. And then, so we can do it to give that, give to help with an injury as well, to, to help unload, unload some tissues or to activate that, that neurological component from an injury. But we can also do it to get better movement and firing patterns, um, working just outside of the injury box and getting more into a more functional movement type of approach. And so like some common brands that people like to use are KT tape and rock tape, stuff like that, right? Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. All right. Last one, active release techniques, or as I think it's commonly known, ART. ART. Um, also called dynamic motion therapy or, or, or DMT falls broadly um, under the, the realm of myofascial release. Um, it's been around for, for many years. And the basic concept of that is we have muscles, fascia, connective tissue that should have be able to, to move in, in different planes of motion and it becomes restricted and that this is allowing us to release the, the those tissues and to get them moving moving better so it has a fascial component it has a neuromuscular component to be able to take areas of pain and restriction and tension and to get it to move move better gotcha are there any new kind of treatment modalities or technologies that gets you get you excited just lo- looking at different things with um different things that, that, that help to encourage movement within the body. So you see different things with um, different massage guns that, that, that have a place. There's things with compressive band therapy um, that's also known as rock floss or some people know it as voodoo floss where we're wrapping it around an extremity, taking that anatomy through a range of motion or doing some exercises um, to be able to, to functionally restore some movement patterns. Um, some things with myofascial decompression, which is a little bit different from kind of a traditional acupuncture cupping. Um, but what we're doing is instead of a, a lot of treatments and therapies are kind of compressive in nature, and the myofascial decompression is where, as the name applies, we're, we're decompressing or trying to create some space and then taking that that through a range of motion or through an exercise allows for um, some good mobility as well that way. What about something like cryotherapy? I know that has kind of taken off as of late. Do you have any non-professional or professional thoughts on on that treatment? Well, Cryotherapy is is something that was just with, with anything else. You got to know why you're doing it. What's what's your general outcome? So when people historically, when when people would get injured, 
the first thing that they were told is put ice on it and that's going to help decrease pain, swelling and inflammation. And we know that that's true. Um, but we've also learned since then is that it can blunt the training effect and or blunt or slow down or delay the tissue healing response. So does icing or cryotherapy have, have a, a place? Absolutely. But you have to know what the pluses and minuses are for it. So we used to have athletes after a long training session, maybe jump into an ice, ice bath or um, here in the Bay Area where, where the, the ocean or the bay is, is a little colder. It feels really good on a hot day after a long run or a long ride to go jump into the water. And personally, from what I've done it, I feel great and recovered to be able to go out and have a hard training session the next day. But what we've also learned is that you lose that some of the training effect um, from that. So doing some more compressive type things um, like some pneumatic compression boots, like a Normatec or something like that. Um, it feels really good. Is it actually doing something that I'm... I'm I'm still trying to figure that out, but I know that that it feels good, and by feeling good, that I believe that it's allowing me to go out and to to be able to to train harder as well. So, if it's if it's within a training session or during peak training, I'm not going to necessarily encourage someone to do an ice path, but if it's after a race or if they're doing a stage event or something like that, um, they can do that. An acute injury maybe ice it for the first 24 hours. Um, but then I'm trying to get people away from icing as much as possible, um, as much as they can tolerate. If they need it to be able to function, that's one thing, but there's just a risk reward uh, type of a situation with that. Before I get you out of here, I want to discuss one more topic with you, which is running shoes. We do a lot of work here at Blister covering running shoes, reviewing them, and I know that they can play a significant role in injury risk and keeping you healthy. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how we can better use running shoes to keep us on the trails. Somewhat of a broad question as well, but I think I can can, can bring it in from a functional perspective. And I think just as, as many of we haven't talked about this so much so far yet, but really with running shoes and anything else, you have to find what works for you just because it works for your buddy or because it works for your team doesn't mean that it's going to work for you. So if what everyone else is doing, if you, if you try that shoe on and, and it works for you, great, but you got to find the shoe that you like and that's comfortable. And that's, that's what the research shows is that the best shoe for someone is is the one that's going to be most comfortable for them that ha has the features that they need for the activity that they're trying to do and having a little bit of variability so when we're talking about doing different variability within movement patterns and sports to become more durable that if we're wearing the same shoe with the same drop for the same thing just like if we're running the same route running the same pace and doing the same thing over and over and over that that's going to lead to an overuse or biomechanical um, Im imbalance 
that by wearing the same type of shoe, that it's not going to allow for that variability. So mix it up a little bit. Have a shoe that is going to be a little more maximal. Have one that's going to be a little more minimal and kind of kind of rotate them through. People ask me all the time what shoes I wear. And the question that I, that I come back with is, what kind of run are we going to do? Are we going on trail? Or are we going on road? Are we going, are we doing like tempo or threshold efforts? Or are we going for more of an endurance and active recovery type effort? And that's, that's going to tie in there as well. Is there any reason why someone would want to wear, say, a shoe with like a lower drop versus a higher drop? Uh, as it relates to to injury or running form or things like that? I think just you, you hear people, you hear the same thing coming for, from different for, from different perspectives. Um, and the different perspectives is you hear people who wear a lower profile shoe saying, this is the best thing ever and everyone should do it. Um, and... Here, I, I had injuries, I had chronic injuries, and I started wearing a minimal shoe, and now I feel better, and all my injuries went away. And you hear equally the same number of stories from uh, the different type of, from more of a maximal shoe. And I think that that just goes to, well, a couple points there is one is when people are touting and saying that this thing applies to everyone across the board, that's a good indication that there's probably some bullshit there and that you need to take that with a grain of salt. Nothing, nothing applies to everybody 100% across the board. So things might apply to broad situations, but there's always going to be a group that are going to fall outside of the bell curve. So some people are going to do better with going to more of a minimal shoe. Some people are going to go do better going to more of a maximal shoe. And that just goes to, you just need to change it up and, and to try, try something different sometimes. I feel like we should add shoe choice to the list of, of topics that are inappropriate for dinner table conversations with like diet and politics and religion. <laughs> Cause there's, yeah, there's so much, uh, so many different camps as it relates to that and they all think they're right people but. get really can get really dogmatic about it and that's that, that that's always an indication like there might be some good stories there but but it's not going to apply across the board so the takeaway is to find what works well for you and do that and switch it up a bit exactly cool should always I be trying to switch it up a little bit whether it's shoes or pacing or routes and if you always go out the door and you always go to this one corner and you turn to the right and you do that every time, you know, sometimes turn to the left. All right. Turn to the left. I think that is a great place to end this conversation. Hal, thanks for coming on and talking to me. Appreciate it, Matt. Had a great time. Thanks for everything. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Hal for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, Please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.